Today's scripture passage will be from Romans chapter 11, Romans 11, verses 25 to 36. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are, the, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, thank you, Rachel. This morning we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Romans, and as we do, we come to kind of the top of Mount Everest. Um, We have been in this theological section of the book of Romans from chapter 1. I don't know when we started this. I think it was July. I don't know when we started Romans. Anyway, July, maybe? Anyway, who knows? Uh, and we are, we are finishing this long trek in section um, in which we've looked at um, some very profound yet um, important and, and deep uh, doctrine and, and theological issues and, and truths throughout this section of the book of, of Romans. Starting next week in chapter 12, as many of you know, it's going to get really practical in terms of, okay, here's, here's the theological truth and now... Here's how all that applies then practically in our lives. But this morning we kind of come to the, the end section here in terms of this theological section in the, in the book of Romans. And, and here's the question I want us to begin with during our time the, this morning. And the question is this. What is God's plan for Israel? In other words, has God rejected Israel? Does God, does God have a future for Israel? Now again, we've talked about this before. These, these questions aren't, aren't necessarily the questions that we're all asking ourselves and have been asking ourselves throughout this week. Thursday night, you probably weren't tossing and turning in bed, wondering these specific questions. But the reality is that through the years, those, those questions that I just asked, those specific questions have resulted in best-selling Christian books and novels, movies, sophisticated charts, modern-day prophecies, 
They've, those questions have affected pretty prominent at the your Bible, and they radically and dramatically affect your understanding of the overall storyline of what the Bible is all about. Because of that then, like these are some pretty significant questions. Like these are some pretty important questions that have a pretty big ripple effect in terms of all of our lives and especially in terms of how we understand and how we read the Bible and how we, what we understand the overall storyline of the Bible to be. These are also the questions that Paul is going to answer within our passage here this morning. The only problem is the answer that he gives to these questions aren't as much detail as we would prefer and like, and as a result, they've created huge debates and arguments and different views and interpretations and opinions in regards to the answers that he gives to these specific questions. Because of that then, instead of just jumping straight into this this passage and these verses that Rachel just read, I thought it would be wise and I thought it would be helpful and smart to kind of start off by reminding us of the overarching question that Paul has been answering since the very beginning of chapter 9. So if you remember, chapter 9 through 11 is this one big overarching section in the book of Romans. And it started with Paul answering a very specific question. And as we understand what that specific question was that he asked and that he's been answering all throughout chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, then it will help us to better understand the answer that he gives in our specific passage here and as we seek to understand and interpret our specific passage here this morning. So then do you remember what that overarching question was? Kind of already asked it. But the overarching question that he began chapter 9 with was this. Have God's promises to Israel failed? That's the question that launched chapter 9, 10, 11. Have God's promises that he made to Israel, ethnic Israel, have they failed? Or in other words, has God permanently and completely rejected Israel? In other words, think about why this is important, right? Go back to the Old Testament. God made all these promises to Israel about how they were going to be a special chosen people, how they're going to enjoy the blessings of God's kingdom, how he's going to come and redeem them and restore them and take away their sin and all of these things. But then if you look at ethnic Israel in Paul's day, and if you look at ethnic Israel in our day, then it sure doesn't seem like God's keeping his promises. Because most of the church in Paul's day and in our day consists mostly of Gentile believers, meaning non-Jews. Doesn't mostly consist of, of Jews. And not only that, but the majority of Jews in Paul's day and our day have rejected Jesus and they're not part of God's, peop- God's covenant people anymore. And so the reality of that then begs the question, is God a liar? Has God gone back on his promises that he made to Israel? Has God completely rejected Israel? And so then that's the question. This is really important. That's the question that Paul is answering 
in Romans 9 through 11. He's not answering, hey, here's what I think about election, or hey, here's what I think about this. He talks about all that, but the answer that he's, the question that he's answering is, has God, has God's promises to Israel failed? And do you remember what his overarching answer has been? His overarching answer has been, on the promises that promised, God never intended. Instead, his plan all along was to save a remnant of believing Jews that he sovereignly chose before the foundation of the world. And it's through this remnant of believing Jews then that God's promises to Israel continue to be fulfilled. The reality of that then raises two questions. How and why? In other words, if God's promises to Israel haven't failed, and if he hasn't rejected them, and if he's going to save a remnant, then how is he going to do this? How is he going to save a remnant of believing Jews? How's that going to happen? Like, specifically, practically, how's that going to happen? And not only that, but why? Why is he going to save them? Why is it such a big deal that he saves them? Why is it so important that he saves Israel? So then those two questions are the two questions that Paul's going to answer in verses 25 through 36 in our passage this morning. And so those are the two questions that we're going to look at. How is God going to save Israel? And why is God going to save Israel? And then after we look at those two questions, then we're going to look at this question. Why in the world does any of that matter for a predominantly Gentile church like us? Why should we care? What effect, what impact should the reality of God saving Israel have on us as majority Gentile believers today? So that's where we're headed, those those three questions. So let's start with this first question here that Paul's gonna answer in our past this morning. The first question is this. How is God going to save Israel? This is what he addresses starting there, verse 25. Look there with me. Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So then the key word, In verses 25 and beginning of 26 there, the key word there, you might want to underline or circle there, is the word mystery. It's the word mystery. And this mystery that Paul is talking about is the mystery of how God is going to save Israel. This mystery that Paul is talking about is the the manner or the way in which Israel is going to be saved. Like the way that's going to happen, the manner in which God's going to do that is a, is a mystery. And so then when you hear that word mystery, right, don't, don't think like mystery in how we use it today. Don't think mystery in terms of something that's impossible for us to comprehend or understand or, or crack the code to, to solve. Instead, the word mystery, and you see this all throughout the Bible, all throughout the New Testament, it, it's, it refers to something that God has hidden in the past but has now divinely revealed. So it's kind of like an open secret. It's something that has been hidden by God in the past, but he's divinely revealed now in the present. And the specific mystery 
that God has now divinely revealed is how he's going to save Israel. The manner, the way in which he's going to save Israel. And we see this in verse 25. Here's the mystery of how God is going to save Israel. See it in the middle of verse 25 there. He says, look there with me, he says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So right there, that, this is the divinely revealed mystery of how God is going to save Israel. And this is what we saw last week, right? 24. He said last week, in verses 11 through 24, about how God is going to save Israel. And so then if you remember, there were three specific stages or three specific steps that, that were going to happen when it comes to God's salvation of, of Israel. And the first step, and you see this on your hand out there, it involved God hard, hardening Israel so that the gospel and salvation would go to the Gentiles. So God, that's the first stage. God hardens Israel so that the gospel and salvation would go to the Gentiles. So talked about this a few weeks ago in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 11. And this is what Paul's referring to once again in verse 25 here. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. And what he means by that is that a part of Israel has been hardened. In other words, all of Israel hasn't been hardened because there's still a believing remnant, as we've talked about. But a partial hardening has come, meaning a part of Israel, the majority of Israel, has been hardened. And the reason, then, that a majority of Israel, a part of Israel, has been hardened is so that the gospel, then, would go to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles would be saved. They would turn to Jesus and be saved. And this is what we saw last week, remember, in, in verse 11 of chapter 11. And this is what Paul is referring to again here at the end of verse 25 when he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. When he uses that language there, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, that is a specific reference to the full number of elect Gentiles that God has chosen to save throughout the history of the world. And so this is God's sovereign plan, right? This is exactly what we talked about last week. He's, he's just summarizing what he said in verses 11 through 24. God has hardened a big part of Israel, not all of them, but a, a huge part of them, so that the gospel would go to the Gentiles, the Gentiles would turn to Jesus by faith, and they would be saved. And so that, the, that would continue to happen, right, over and over again, so that the full number of Gentiles that God has chosen to save throughout history would come to faith in Jesus and be saved. So that's like first step, stage number one. God's plan didn't stop there, though. Remember, God had something more in mind. Second step then, or stage, is then that the salvation of the Gentiles then would lead to Israel's jealousy. So Paul doesn't explicitly state this here in verses 25 and 26, but he alludes to it because this is what we saw last week, right? In verse 11 of chapter 11. In other words, when unbelieving Jews 
See what God has done and is doing among the Gentiles. Now Gentiles are coming to saving faith in Christ. How they're enjoying the blessings of the kingdom and all these blessings of salvation that they were promised in the Old Testament. Then the Jews are going to be provoked to jealousy because of that. And do you know then what Israel's jealousy is going to lead to? It's going to lead to the third step or the third stage of how God's going to save Israel. You see this on your head out. Israel's jealousy is going to lead to Israel's salvation. In other words, when Gentiles come to faith in Jesus, then the Jews are going to see how they're enjoying the, all these promises of salvation. Then at that point in time, a number of some unbelieving ethnic Jews then are going to become jealous of the, the blessings of salvation that the Gentiles are enjoying, that they were meant to enjoy. And in their jealousy then, they're going to turn to Christ and they're going to be saved. And this is what Paul is talking about in verse 26 when he says, in this way, meaning in this manner, all Israel will be saved. Israel. And this, and total mystery to those in Paul's day. Like, no one would ever dream this. No one would have ever imagined that this wacky plan is how God was going to go about saving Israel. Like, this would have been unthinkable. God's going to harden Jews so that the gospel would go to these filthy, gnarly, gent unclean Gentiles they were going to come to faith in Christ, be included in the covenant people of God, then all of these, a number, some Jews, Israelites, are going to become jealous of them. And in their jealousy, they're going to turn to faith in Christ and be saved. And that's God's sovereign plan and design for how he's going to save Israel. Like, somebody, like God has to divinely reveal that for anybody to know that. That would have been completely, 100%, just totally crazy. But that's, that's, that's the mystery. That, that's the mystery. Now let's press pause real quick and get like really controversial now because there's a whole lot of debate in verse 26 here when Paul says all Israel is going to be saved. Like these are the ver that verse is the hardest verse in the entire book of Romans and hard, like really hard, difficult. And there are good God-believing Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians and scholars that have different viewpoints when it comes to what, what that specific verse means. Here's what it doesn't mean, though. It doesn't mean that every ethnic Jew that has ever lived is going to be saved, regardless of whether or not they place their faith in Jesus. Like the entire book of Romans has debunked that idea. So that's definitely not what that means. 
There are three, though, main, main views and, and main interpretations that, that scholars take when it comes to the specific question of what does Paul mean when he means that all Israel is going to be saved? And since this is kind of a huge debate, wanted to spend some time just real quick kind of just talking through some of the finer points of these different views and different opinions that people have when it comes to the meaning of all Israel um, will be saved. And so here's the three main views, and then I'll, I'll kind of show you my, my hand, I guess, and let you know where I land on this. And, but if you have more questions, there's a lot we could get into here, but I'll try and make this as brief as I possibly can. So here's the three main views when it comes to this, those words, all Israel will be saved. View number one, all Israel being saved is a reference to the sum total of Jews and Gentiles. So the true Israel, the true spiritual Israel, who trust in Jesus. So in other words, those who hold to this view would say that all Israel isn't referring to ethnic Jews who have trusted in Jesus by faith. Instead, all Israel here is a reference to the true spiritual Israel that's made up of Jewish believers and Gentile believers who've been united together through faith in Christ. Primary place they go to to defend that view is that olive tree metaphor that we saw from last week in verses 17 through 24 of how Jews and Gentiles united together are now the people of God making up that olive tree. That very well could be what all Israel being saved means here. So that, that's not Israel being saved. End of history. Here in verses 25 and 26, it's chronological. So then they understand Paul to be saying that there's a partial hardening of Israel for a season, for a time, until the full number of elect Gentiles come to faith in Jesus. At that point in time then, God is going to remove the hardening of ethnic Israel, and as a result, that's going to lead to a mass conversion of ethnic Jews, which will ultimately take place right before the return of Jesus. So then all Israel here is a reference to ethnic Jews who are alive after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. It, it doesn't mean that every ethnic Jew alive at that time is going to be saved, but it does mean Israel, all Israel, meaning Israel as a whole, will be saved. Meaning a whole stinking bunch of them is what that means. And this is, sorry, this is going to happen then at the end of history, after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, and are saved. There's going to be this mass conversion of ethnic Jews at that specific point in time. That right there is by far the majority view um, among many. View number three then is this. All Israel being saved is a reference to the remnant of ethnic Jews who are saved both in Paul's day and throughout the rest of human history. In other words, Instead of a mass conversion of ethnic Jews at the end of history, this view believes that all Israel is a reference to the remnant of ethnic Jews that God has chosen and that God will save little by little throughout the course of human history. Does that make sense? So at this moment, and I stress, like really stress at this moment, this would be the view that, that I would hold at, at this moment, at this moment, meaning tomorrow I might change my mind. But, and, and here's why, real quick, okay, two reasons. 
there's a lot that could be said here. But the first reason is because I think that Israel that Paul is talking about here in verse 26 is a reference to ethnic Israel and not spiritual Israel. And, and the reason I, I say that is because that seems to best fit this overarching question that Paul's been trying to answer from the very beginning of chapter 9 all the way through chapter 11 of whether or not God's promises to Israel, to ethnic Israel, have failed and whether or not God has rejected ethnic Israel. It also best fits this immediate context of chapter 11 and the distinction that he's been making all throughout chapter 11 of Gentiles and ethnic Jews. And it also fits the context of the verses that, we're about to, that are about to follow, starting verse 27, really through verse 32, that within those verses there, it's pretty clear that those are specifically a reference to ethnic Israel. The second reason then, I think this is the best view, is because all throughout chapter 11, and this, this reason is really important, when Paul talks about Israel being saved, he, he's not, he doesn't talk about that happening sometime in the way future. He's not talking about Israel being saved in the future, like some mass conversion that happens at the end of history. Instead, every time Paul's talking about Israel being saved throughout chapter 11, he's talking about Israel being saved now. He's talking about Israel being saved in the present. He's talking about Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, Jews becoming jealous now, Jews turning to Christ to be saved now. Not sometime later, some mass conversion in the future before Jesus returns. And so then here, here's my, under, there's a lot more that can be said here, but here's my understanding there, right? Putting all that together of verses 25, the way, burdening part of Israel, and as the full number of elected Gentiles are saved, then elect Jews are going to become jealous, turn to Christ and be saved, and this is going to continue to happen little by little, ongoingly, throughout the rest of human history. In saying all that, though, okay, so unpause button. In saying all that, though, regardless of which of these three views you hold, Paul's main point here is the same. God has not and God will not reject Israel. That's the point. Instead, one day all Israel is going to be saved in whatever way you understand and interpret those words to me. View number three is the best one, but no. Uh, but however you understand that, right? God, the point is God hasn't kicked Israel to the curb. He hasn't washed his hands clean of Israel. Instead, he has a plan in motion that's going to lead to all Israel being saved, however you interpret that to me. So that's the, that's the how. Which then leads to this question, why? Why is God going to save Israel? Like, why is this such a big stinking deal? Why has he devoted three chapters to, to, to this whole question about whether or not God's rejected Israel? Like, why is it so important that God saves Israel? Well, this why question was what Paul answers starting at the end of verse 26, really all the way through down, through down to verse 32. And within these verses, he's going to give three reasons for why God is going to save Israel and why it's important that God saves Israel. And you see these on your hand out there. The first reason is this. 
God is going to save Israel because he said he would in his word. He said he would in his word. It's what we see. Look at the very end of verse 26 and the end of verse 27. What Paul's going to do here is he's going to quote two verses from the Old Testament, specifically from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And within these verses, God promised to save Israel hundreds of years earlier in his word. And this is what we see. Look at the end of verse 26. He says, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, which is another word for Jerusalem. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So this is important. Like, who's Jacob? Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And because of that, then, in the Old Testament, especially, uh, Israel is often referred to as Jacob. And so then that's who Jacob is a reference to here. Jacob is a reference to Israel. And so then going all the way back to the Old Testament then, God promised that he was going to send a deliverer, a redeemer, who was going to come from Jerusalem and take away the sins of Jacob, of Israel. So that's one reason then why God is going to save Israel. Because he said he was going to do it in his word. And so if he didn't do it, and he said he was going to do it, then he's a liar, and we're wasting our time, and we ought to just all go home. The second reason God's going to save Israel is because of the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because of the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what we see. Paul goes on to say there in verse 28. Look there with me in verse 28. He says, as regards the gospel, they, and the they here is a reference to Jacob or a reference to ethnic Israel, are enemies for your sake. Meaning, they're enemies of God because they don't believe the gospel. But as regards election, they, again referring to ethnic Israel here, are beloved for the vocable. Even though they're enemies of God because because God's beloved chosen people. Because of the promises that God made to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so then, this is important though, just just because they're God's chosen people doesn't mean that all ethnic Israel is is saved like we talked about earlier. That's not what Paul's saying here. But what it does mean is this. It does mean that God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers, the patriarchs of Israel. And those promises are irrevocable, meaning they can't be broken. They're unbreakable, meaning God's got to keep them because He made these promises to them. He's got to keep them. And so then this is why God isn't going to completely and totally reject Israel and just wash His hands clean of them And why he's going to save those ethnic Jews who trust in Jesus. Why? It's because he made promises to their forefathers that are irrevocable and that he intends to keep. And so he has to keep them. Which then leads to this last reason for why God is going to save Israel. And the last reason is this. It's because... He's merciful. He's merciful. 
That's what Paul goes on to say there in verse 30 and really down to verse 32. Look there with me. He says, for just as you, and the you there is specifically a reference to Gentile believers, were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. And that their disobedience is a reference to unbelieving Israel who've been, who's, who've been hardened by God. Verse 31, so they too, referring to unbelieving ethnic Israel, have now been disobedient, meaning they've been hardened, in order that by the mercy shown to you, meaning Gentile believers, they, referring to Israel, also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all, meaning both of those groups, Jew and Gentiles, to disobedience. He's hardened both so that he may have mercy on all, meaning both groups, Jew and Gentile. So the all there, this is really important, is in reference to every single individual that's ever lived. The all here is specifically referenced to both groups, Jews and Gentiles. So doesn't that make your brain hurt just reading those verses there? Like, the pronouns and what in the world, you know, and your brain's just all blowing up. So those verses, right, a little difficult to track there. But what Paul's doing here is he, he's basically just summarizing. One last time, just kind of summarizing how God is going to save Israel and why God is going to save Israel. He's just summarizing the manner, the, the way that God is going to save Israel and the reason for why God is going to save Israel. In other words, Paul's saying that God consigned, meaning he shut up, he imprisoned, he confined Israel to disobedience, meaning he, he hardened them so that Gentiles would come to salvation and receive his mercy. And he showed mercy to the Gentiles so that Jews would become jealous, trust in Jesus, and so God would show them mercy. In this way, then, everyone receives mercy. Both groups receive mercy. Both Jewish believers, Gentile believers, showered, both of them showered with the mercy of God. And again, these are the two reasons, then. Not the only reason, but two reasons for why God is going to save Israel. He's going to save if he doesn't promises in his word that he's going to save them in order to uphold his faithfulness and his trustworthiness and his truthfulness. The second reason, though, he's going to save Israel is because he's merciful. He's merciful. He's going to show mercy to Gentile believers. He's going to show mercy to Jewish believers as well. He's going to give both groups something they don't deserve. Both groups deserve to be shut up and live forever in prison and disobedience and hardening. But instead, he's going to show mercy. Which then leads to this third and final question. What in the world does any of this have to do with us? I, I don't know. I haven't investigated everybody's background here. And there's guests here and, that I don't know. But most of us, far large majority of us, aren't ethnic Jews. We're Gentile believers. So what in the world does any of all this, how God is going to save Israel, why God is going to save Israel, 
what effect, what's it matter, what impact, what, what should any of this have to do with our lives as Gentile believers in a Gentile church today? Well, let me, let me mention three ways that, that this whole idea of, of everything we've seen in God's salvation of Israel, that the impact, the effect it should have on our lives today. You have two ways that are listed on your handout there. I added another way this morning. And here's the, the first way isn't on your handout there. First way is this. The reality of these truths, meaning God's salvation of Israel, how he's going to save Israel, should cause us to remove every ounce of spiritual pride and self-righteousness in our lives and cause us to be humble. Since that's not on your handout, I'll say it again. The reality of these truths, meaning God's salvation of Israel and how he's going to do it, should cause us to remove every ounce of spiritual pride and self-righteousness from our lives and cause us to be humble. That right there is one of the major reasons for why Paul wrote this passage that we just went through this morning. Do you remember, I skipped over it, but do you remember how verse 25 started? You remember how the very beginning of this passage started? Look there again at verse 25. Paul began this passage this way. Lest you, you know who the you is? It's the same you all throughout this passage. It's Gentile believers. Gentile believers in the church at Rome. Gentile believers in the church at Cross Fellowship Church. Lest you, Gentile believers, be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. In other words, do you see who he wants to know, who he wants to understand this mystery. He wants us, Gentile believers, to understand this mystery. And one of the reasons that Paul explained this mystery of how God is going to save Israel is so that Gentile believers like you and me won't be wise in our own sight. That's the whole point of everything that we've just gone through. The whole point was so you and I, Gentile believers, wouldn't be wise in our own sight. It's so we wouldn't be proud and self-righteous and, and puffed up. And that's what was happening to the Gentile believers in Paul's day. When they looked around the, the church at Rome, you know what they saw? You know who they saw? They mainly saw people just like them. They mainly saw mostly Gentile believers. And because of that, they figured God was done with Israel then. They're in the past God's kicked them to the curb. And now they're God's special people. They're God's favorite people. They're the ones it puffed them through this morning to show. Ah, <laughs> oh, you got it all wrong. God's not done with Israel. Instead, He, in some ways, the only reason He saved you is so that he could save them. He showed mercy to you so that he could show mercy to them. So you're not as big stuff as you thought you were. And that right there, right? That's the effect that mercy should have on our lives. Isn't it? Like mercy removes every ounce of pride every ounce of self-righteousness and arrogance from our lives. And it keeps us from feeling like we're superior to or more important than anyone else. 
And this whole idea of mercy being shown to both groups reminds us that we don't have a patent on mercy. Like, God didn't just show mercy to, to us as if we were just the special ones and excluded others from it. Instead, he's, he's shown mercy and showered mercy to both groups. And this is good, right? And there's so much more here than just uh, exhortation against anti-Semitism. But it's just, we shouldn't feel superior to any group. We shouldn't feel better than any group. We shouldn't feel like we're proud in our ego stroke because we're better than, than anybody. So mercy levels us all and reminds us that the salvation that we have has absolutely nothing to do with us. We don't deserve it. And so that it's something that God in his mercy gave to us. And he gave to others as well, which should, which should cause us to, to be humble. Second effect or impact it should have on our lives then is this. The reality, and you see this on your handout, the reality of these truths should cause us to trust God and believe that he will always be faithful to his promises. Again, this is the whole reason, this is the main reason for Romans chapter 9 through 11 here. That the beginning question, again, right, that, that Paul began this entire section, these three chapters with, is whether or not God's promises to Israel have failed. And so then, that's his whole point. This whole point in these three chapters isn't to teach on election. I know that disappoints a lot of you here. The whole point in these chapters is just simply to prove that God's trustworthy. It's to prove that His promises to Israel haven't failed. This whole point of these chapters is to defend the trustworthiness and the faithfulness of God and to prove that God's not a liar and that He doesn't break His promises. He promised to Israel a kingdom and salvation and take away their sins way back in the day, and even though it might not look like that's happening today, it's happening in a way that even in their wildest minds they could never comprehend. God's answering, God's fulfilling His promise. He's just doing it in crazy ways that they never would have dreamed up or thought up to begin with. And that right there, right, this going back to what we talked about last week, that, that, that's a huge reminder for our lives as well. Especially for some of you, right? You, you're going through hard times. You think God's asleep. You think God's just, you know, he's not working, he's not moving. You can't, you can't see him at work. You, you look at the word and the promises that he's given, but you look at your life and you're like, there seems to be a disconnect here. You're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. You're suffering and suffering and suffering, God just seems to be really confused. Is here just to understand it. Trust Him. He's not going to break them. Which then leads to the third way God's salvation of Israel should impact us. The third way is this. The reality of these truths should cause us to burst out in praise to God for His unfathomable wisdom. This is what we see, right? I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but this is what we see. This is how Paul ends this chapter. I love this. The very end of chapter 11. This is what Paul does when he gets to the very end of chapter 
11 here in verses 33 through verse 36, right? Look there with me. He, he contemplates. He's been writing for really three whole chapters here describing how God is going to save Israel along with how he's going to save the Gentiles and, and how he's going to do it in this way that's unexpected and surprising and, and it's totally just unexpected and mysterious, surprising sort of way and that he's going to bring this salvation to completion and save Israel. And as Paul then contemplates these realities of how God's going to do it, like Paul can't hold it in any longer. Instead, he burst out in, in praise. He burst out in adoration. He burst out in worship to God for his unfathomable wisdom. And that's what he does there in verse 33. Just see how he, he praises God and worships God in verse 33. He says, oh, the depth of of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In other words, the whole point of what he's getting at is God's wisdom. It's far, far superior to ours. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Like we've been questioning, right, all along. Have God's promises failed? Has God reneged on His word? Has God gone back on His word? But the reality is, He's been working according to His plan. He's been working according to His plan. And he's been working in such a way that doesn't just save Israel, but he's been working in such a way that saves us too, Gentiles too. He hadn't been working in such a way just to show mercy to Israel. He's been working in such ways that he can show mercy to us too. It just, we didn't see it. We didn't, nobody understood it. Because his plans, his ways, his wisdom is far superior and far better and far greater than ours. And that was his design. That of all the families on the face of the earth, way back in the day, he chose one. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he made promises to them. Fast forward hundreds of years later. He hardens his people, Israel. It just doesn't make sense. So that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. And did that so the Gentiles could be saved. The Jews would become jealous. The Jews that he'd chosen before the foundation of the world would come to saving faith in Christ. And all of that is the mystery that God has hidden for ages of how God was going to save Israel and unite Jew and Gentile believers together in the church and how God was going to build the church. Like all of that was God's doing. He orchestrated it all according to a sovereign plan and a sovereign wisdom. And because of that then, then the only proper response as we try and wrap our minds around that and are confronted with that reality that are all things. Amen. Let me pray. Be glory forever. Amen.
Let me pray. Lord, you're weird sometimes. Which shouldn't surprise us because you're holy, which means set apart, distinct, different, and a league and category of your own. And therefore, your wisdom is a set apart and distinct and different from us in a league and category of your own. So what should make us, finite little man, think that we can understand and comprehend why you do the things you do and how you do them? You work in mysterious, surprising, unexpected ways. And we, as mostly Gentile believers in this room this morning who've trusted in Jesus, are the evidence and picture of your mysterious sovereign wisdom. Because we shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be here. We should be confined to disobedience, to hard hearts that are blind to the reality of your saving promises. They weren't even initially made to us. We were outsiders, aliens, strangers, outside of the covenant and the promises that you made. But by your grace, you included us You brought us in. You grafted us in. Like as Gentiles, we're we're doubly lost. We're not just born depraved and in Adam. But we're outside of all these promises. But you and your sovereign plan and purposes had this grand design before the creation of the world. And through your sovereign election and magnificent mercy and unfathomable wisdom has saved us, saved ethnic Jews, not so you could have two distinct people, but so you could create a whole new people that aren't defined by our ethnicity, our race, our gender, our age. But that's defined by Jesus. And so God, we we stand here amazed, surprised, unexpected. But we stand here giving you the praise, acknowledging your wisdom, and proclaiming your glory that you and you alone deserve. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things.